Uh, it is great to be with you guys. If you guys have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the latter half of Hebrews chapter 9. As you guys turn there, uh, let me introduce myself. A lot of you guys may not know me. My name is Trey Corey. I'm our uh, Southwood Campus College pastor, and I also oversee a lot of our small groups. And so if you're doing small groups here with us, you've probably seen me on Tuesday nights. But uh, Matt and I are doing a little flip-flop this morning, and so it is a joy uh, for my wife, Marcy, and I to get to be with you guys and get to see a lot of faces that we don't normally get to see. And so it is joy to be with you guys. We're going to be Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to at least start out in verses 14 to 17 this morning, and then we'll walk through and, and work through the rest of this as we go this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. The writer of Hebrews tells us, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Will you pray with me? Father God, we give you great thanks this morning um, that we can come before you, that we can worship you, that we have access to know you and to have a relationship with you. And Father, I pray even uh, the day before Valentine's, even the day in which a lot of us begin to wrestle with how valuable we are, Lord, I thank you that you've shown us, that you've communicated to us, that you've told us beyond a shadow of a doubt and beyond what anyone else would ever tell us um, that we are valuable. And that at creation, when you were full of your glory, you decided to show off your splendor and your majesty by creating and humanity and drawing us into a relationship with you. And even when we screw that up, Lord, you show us how far you value us by at a hill at Golgotha that you would come and you would allow your son and his blood to be shed and that you would pay the ultimate cost so that we could be reconciled to you. And Father, I pray for many of us this morning, Lord, that you would remind us afresh that we are your beloved. And that you would remind us afresh that we are valuable in your hands and in your sight. And Father, I pray this morning as we open your word, as we walk through Hebrews chapter 9, Lord, I pray that you would call us afresh to drawing near to you. I pray that you would teach us afresh what it means to walk with you and that you would call us further this morning. I pray that you would give us hearts that are responsive to you, uh, minds that are illuminated to understand your word. And Lord, that we would just hear you clearly this morning. I pray that you would use of me however you see fit. And Father, I ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, some of you guys that were here last week had the opportunity to hear Matt and Shannon's dating talk. Uh, some of you guys may have uh, gotten that pep talk and walked out this week and asked a girl out. Some of y'all may have gotten shot down, for which point I want to say I'm so sorry. Uh, for those of y'all who may have gone out and pulled the trigger and asked the girl out and got a yes, what you may not have realized is that you made a gigantic miscalculation. Valentine's is approaching, all right? Um, <laughs> At Southwood, at our Southwood campus, Marcy and I are going to do our dating talk next Sunday because, frankly, not just because of scheduling, but I always had a policy, a, a rule that guided me in dating, all right? Not very many rules, but one at least, and that was this. Between Thanksgiving and Valentine's, I would never begin a new dating relationship, all right? Why? Two reasons. One, how do you take and how do you handle Christmas with a brand new relationship, right? What kind of gift says, hey, I like you? but I'm not really ready to marry you yet, right? Or, or you just entered into a relationship this week and you got Valentine's approaching. What do you do with Valentine's, right? Brand new relationship. Again, how do you say, hey, I, I really like you. I'm really kind of interested in you, but I'm not really ready to have kids and get married, right? What color roses do I choose? Do I go with yellow that means friendship, white that means purity, or red that means love? And do I want to say red roses, right? What do you want to communicate? And how do you handle Valentine's in a new relationship? 
for some of y'all, you may not be in a relationship, and Valentine's is just one more brutal reminder that you're lonely and you're single, right? You're laughing because you know that's you, right? I think I had one fruitful Valentine's, right, in my uh, pre-married life, and that was the senior year of college, right? Up until then, they were all cold, dark, lonely moments, okay? And so no matter where you are, whether you've started out in a new relationship this week and you made a miscalculation, whether you're single and lonely and wondering when will you ever spend a Valentine's with someone, I want to assure you of one thing this morning. It could be much, much worse, all right? Uh, One of my favorite stories was probably one of the worst crash and burn romantic stories that I've ever come across, all right? It was a guy who had been dating a girl who was on the edge of engagement. He'd spent a summer working and saved up about $3,000 working multiple jobs so that he could purchase a ring, all right? And his romantic dream is going to come crashing down to the very hands of the jeweler who was supposed to be making the ring that he was going to use to propose. And this is how it went. He had been dating this girl and it's been a few months with the jeweler and they had, in a sense, over these few months kind of landed on three or four rings that he thought would be perfect for his girl. And as he got to that critical moment where he's about ready to pay for the ring and and take it with him and and give the final approval to the jeweler, he kind of got cold feet, not about the relationship, but about pulling the trigger and choosing the ring himself. So he decided what he wanted to do was kind of get his girl into the decision-making process. And so what he decided to do, great idea in some regards, is he took her out to a romantic dinner and then in the aftermath of the dinner had set things up and took her to the jeweler's office. All right. And they come in there and she sits down and he begins to explain to her that he wants to spend the rest of his life with her. She's floored, blown away, begins to cry, hands are being held, I love you's are flowing like milk and honey, all right? I guess milk and honey flow a lot, I don't know, all right? A lot of I love you's, okay? And uh, it's just a great moment, tears are being shed, Uh, it's just one of those awesome moments. And so they begin to kind of look through the three or four rings that they've pre-selected that fit in this guy's budget, and as they begin to walk through those, uh, the girl begins to seem not so interested by the three or four rings that they've selected. And so she begins to subtly begin to ask about some of the other rings in the office and some of the other diamonds that she sees. The jeweler realizing that all of those rings were outside of this poor guy's budget tries to subtly and graciously redirect her back to the rings that are in his budget. And eventually she's not budging, she's not seeming interested, and she's beginning to speak pretty negatively toward the rings that this guy spent his last few months trying to design and plan and and save towards And eventually, the jeweler has to explain to the girl, I'm sorry, but we're actually kind of working within a limited budget here. And really, the size of the ring is not that big of a deal. And at some point, something triggers in her, and and she goes, Jekyll and Hyde on us, and she flips out on the jeweler, all right? And she begins to explain to the jeweler with her guy sitting right here that there's no way in the world she's ever getting married to a guy who cannot put at least a carrot on her finger, all right? Hello, oh my gosh, right? (laughs) The awkwardness that you guys just felt, imagine if you were the guy and you were the jeweler in the office, okay? And so the jeweler thinking, surely she's joking, surely, tries to pull some jokes and and, and he begins to realize really quickly she's not laughing and finding it funny whatsoever. And all the I love you's and all the hand-holding and all the humility and and the flooring of emotions that had started out the appointment are long gone, all right? And so the jeweler begins to take his diamonds and begins to put them back in the envelopes and begins to slowly but surely put them back in the drawers of the desk. And so all of a sudden, this girl goes from angry and hurt to confused. And she asks the jeweler, hey, why are you putting the rings and the diamonds up? We're here to design a ring. How are we going to do that if we got nothing that we can see and nothing we can put our hands on? And the jeweler at this point turns his attention away from the girl and looks right in the guy's eyes and says, let me tell you something. I don't think you guys are ready to get married. In fact, I don't think she's the right girl for you. 
I think she's far more concerned with materialism and the ring on her finger than she is the guy on her arm. And so my advice to you is run away as fast (laughs) and as far and as quickly as you can, okay? Now, on behalf of this girl, she probably just had a bad moment and a bad day, all right? She probably wasn't that bent on it. Uh, but ultimately, what, what the jeweler did was that the girl takes off. She goes off in the, eleva- in the hallway. She's waiting for the elevator. Uh, and the guy, confused and bewildered, begins to grab his stuff. And he's going to go running after her. And the jeweler goes even one step further and says, hey, you, you aren't going anywhere. Sit down. All right. You're not going to see her. You're not going to run after her. You and I are hanging out tonight. We're grabbing a pizza and a movie. And I need to know who we're calling because we need some other people tonight. All right. All right. In one 20, 30 minute appointment, this poor guy's romantic dream went up in flames. All right. It died as dramatically as you can ever imagine or think of. And so no matter what your feelings and your emotions are tomorrow, let me assure you, it could be much, much worse. Right. Exactly. Now, why do I also tell that story? I think that story actually gives us a great principle for something we're going to see in our passage this morning. Ultimately, that poor guy's dream died as dramatically as you can imagine. But in the death of his dream, what he found was a far better life and a far better future than he could have imagined if he had clung and held on to that dream. By letting go of that dream, he actually found a quality and an experience of life and a security of the future that he would not have had if he had clung on to it and held on with dear tightness. And what we're going to see this morning as we walk through Hebrews chapter 9 is that we're going to see particularly what the death of Christ accomplishes for you and I. What we're going to see particularly is that it not only does it forgive our past, but it reorients and changes our present life and it secures our future. And that apart from the death of Christ, we would not have life eternal nor quality and abundant life now. And that death was absolutely necessary for that. So as we walk through this passage, we're really just going to take a twist though. And that what we're going to see is it's not just primarily about the death of Christ, but it's going to take a twist at the end. And it's going to not be just an explanation of the death of Christ, but it's going to be an invitation to death that you and I are called to experience as well. So that's where the writer of Hebrews is going to take us this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. As we begin, one of the first things I want you guys to see is that the death itself is necessary. There's a necessity of death. Look with me, verse 16. The writer of Hebrews tells us, For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. There is a necessity of death, according to the author in Hebrews chapter 9. The question, of course, is what is it necessary for? And I think what the writer of Hebrews is going to show us is that the death of Christ was necessary for you and I to experience life. Life not just eternal, but life even in the present in terms of an abundant quality of life. And apart from the death of Christ, you and I would have never experienced that. And the writer of Hebrews is going to do it in chapter 9 in kind of an interesting way. He's going to turn this discussion of the new covenant kind of around in a sense. He's going to give them an explanation of the new covenant through a different analogy and through a different lens. In particular, what he's going to do in, in Hebrews 9 is give us the lens of a will. So you guys have not probably made your own wills, but at least for Marcy and I at the stage of life we are, we have a kid. And so we've went ahead and set in in place a will so that in the event, and it's as morbid as it can sound, in the event that we die or die together, what happens to our child? What happens to our stuff? So we've made an arrangements for all those things. Not that we have a lot of stuff, but if someone wanted to argue and and what would happen to it, right? Um, And then you also appoint someone that's a trustee or mediator, someone who's going to oversee that if we were to die, Someone's going to oversee the, the way that we've planned it in our will gets carried out. What the writer of Hebrews is going to do in Hebrews 9 is he's going to put the new covenant in terms of a will. If you guys remember, as we've been walking the last few weeks talking about the new covenant, the prophets Ezekiel and the prophets Jeremiah spoke of the new covenant to come. As we looked at the Old Testament, we saw that there was a first covenant. 
a covenant made with Moses for the nation of Israel. It was the first covenant. It was the old covenant. It was the law. And the writer of Hebrews in chapters 8 and 9 has been contrasting that old covenant with a new covenant. A covenant that we're going to see gets begun or gets inaugurated with the death of Jesus Christ. The prophets spoke of the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as a covenant that was coming in the future. The question for the nation of Israel was they had no idea when this future covenant would be enacted and it would begin. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is it has begun now because Jesus Christ has died. His death was necessary to begin and to execute this will. Uh, for, uh, for myself, I'm an only child, all right? And so I stand to inherit all of my parents' estate, all right? Now imagine, if you will, my parents, uh, this is not an imagination, they're actually about to uh, retire. And, and come April, both of my parents will be retired and they'll have uh, their golden years to spend their money, to travel, to do whatever they want. But imagine if I came to them and I said this, mom and dad, you guys are old. You guys can't travel. Your health is poor. Why don't you guys begin to give me your money so that while I in my youth can do things with it that are fun, we would all be benefited, right? How awkward would that be, all right? It would be incredibly awkward, all right? Because I approached them before their death, right? Their death is necessary for that will to be put in order. Uh, in 2005, Marcy and I got prepared and we took off for two years and we lived in East Asia. Had a great two years there. Getting some whoops, I love that, all right? Um, and in preparation for going, we began to tell people, hey, we're going to be living in East Asia for the next couple years. And people's responses were all kinds of, of varied, uh, weird responses. Some were like, hey, that's great. It'll be a great cultural rounding experience for you. Uh, some knew that we were going to serve the Lord and so they, they, they got that, they loved that. And some were far more materialistic and superficial. They began saying things like this. So for the two years that you're going to be in East Asia, you probably can't take your clothes with you, can you? Uh, how about you let me wear those clothes, right? Coworkers were asking Marcy, hey, can I have your boots? Uh, people were asking me if they could have my golf clubs, my TV, all right? Um, we hadn't died, but we were in a sense dead to them, and therefore they wanted our stuff, all right? Uh, they got the order wrong, all right? You can't have our stuff till we're dead, right? Okay, and, and to come before death just makes it incredibly, incredibly awkward. Uh, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say in Hebrews 9 is that it was necessary that Jesus die before any of his stuff got dispersed, all right? And so watch what he says in Hebrews chapter 9. What we're going to see is that this analogy of a will gets carried out. In a sense, the death of Christ was necessary. In fact, death has always been necessary. Not just the death of Christ, but death throughout the scriptures for God to provide life. Watch this, verse 18. Or actually, we'll pick up verse 17. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant, the one with Moses, was not, was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the blood of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that the death of Christ sets up a pattern. There's a precedent we saw already from the Old Testament. And the precedent was this, that death was absolutely necessary to provide for life. We see it from the Old Testament. We're going to see it as we move into the New Testament. That death was necessary to provide life. We see it in the Old Covenant and that what the writer of Hebrews has been saying and been telling us throughout the book so far is that in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they could never actually forgive sin. They could never actually cleanse you and I from our sins. So what were they? What was their purpose? I think a couple things. One was they were meant to be a picture, a symbol pointing toward a day in which a better sacrifice would come that would ultimately cleanse us from sins. They were meant to be a tutor that would prepare us for the need of Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
The other thing that the law did in the sacrifices of the Old Testament is that they prepared us and they taught the nation of Israel that in order to walk with God, it was a lifestyle that required sacrifice. So even as they brought an animal, a goat, a bull, even as they brought grain offerings, they were bringing things that cost them dearly at times. And in order to walk with God, in order to have a relationship with God, in order for it to be all that it could be, God was telling them that what was necessary was an experience of sacrifice, an experience of offering of their selves, of their time, of their possessions, of their life. And it wasn't just a picture of getting life eternal, but it was a picture even for the nation of Israel primarily of experiencing life and all it was intended to be even in the present. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, hey, death was necessary not just to provide for eternal life, but to provide for abundant life in the present. And he goes on further and he says in verse 23 or 22, and according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, look, the death of Christ was being foreshadowed and it draws forth a principle that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And that's this, that in order to find life, death was required. In order to find life, death was required. And what the death of Christ does is it sets up and it inaugurates the new covenant. And notice how the writer of Hebrews sets up who Jesus is. Verse 15, for this reason, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus, the deceased, is also the executor. He's the trustee. He's the one who not only was deceased, it's his will and his stuff that's going to be dispersed, but he's also the one who oversees its dispersal. Why? Because he's the only deceased who's not deceased, right? (laughs) He died and was therefore resurrected. And in his resurrection, he takes place as the mediator of this new covenant. And what is he mediating and to whom is he mediating? Notice the rest of verse 15. Uh, So that those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. To those who have been called, they may receive the eternal inheritance. John puts it like this. But as many as received them to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John is saying that in the death of Christ, his death was not just uh, an executing of a will, but it was an invitation and an offer to the world, particularly to those who have been called, particularly it was an offer of an eternal inheritance that the writer of John says that to those who would believe in him, they become children of God. That you and I, if we trust in Jesus Christ and understand the death and resurrection that he encountered so that you and I could have life and be reconciled to him, that for those of us who've made that decision, For those of us who've believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we become children of God, and as children, we become heirs of all that he has. And as we've been walking through the new covenant the last few weeks, that that heirship, that inheritance is not just that you and I get our debt wiped out. It's not just that God comes and he forgives our sin because he wants us to be moral people, but he comes and he begins to transform us from the inside out. He begins to rechange, he begins to change our heart, he begins to change and put a new spirit within us so that we begin to walk with him and know him more deeply. And that all that begins the moment you and I enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I want to ask you this morning, have you ever made that decision? Have you ever come to a place in your life and you realize that apart from Jesus Christ and the shedding of blood that was necessary to provide life, that you and I can never enter into a relationship with him and never have life. That apart from what Jesus did on a cross when his blood was shed, you and I can never have confidence after the grave. And what the passage of the writer of Hebrews is going to do as we move on is he's going to show us that because Jesus endured death, he dealt with our past. But because death did not hold him, he reorients our present and he secures our future. Notice what happens in terms of this passage that we begin to talk about life after death, that the death of Christ is going to wipe away our past, 
But the resurrection, the life of Christ is going to reorient our present and secure our future. Notice what happens, verses 24 and on. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Why? What's he doing? Now to appear in the presence of God for us. That after death, Jesus Christ has appeared in the heavens and he is in the heavens right now. He's taken the seat at the right hand of the majesty of the throne of God and he's our advocate, he's our defender. In fact, he's done more going on, verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The writer of Hebrews is going to mention three different times in three different ways that Christ has appeared. The first way that he's appeared is that he's appeared in heaven and he's in heaven now. The second way that the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus appeared was referring to the past when Jesus came. He was incarnated. He came and he he walked on the earth and he died. And his death on the earth and his first coming, his first appearance was to put away sin. But there's another coming and there's another appearance that's coming. Notice verse 27. And in as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Notice the writer of Hebrews ends this section saying, it's not just that Christ appeared at the consummation of the ages. Paul would say in Galatians, at the right time, Jesus came to bear the sins of many. He also has appeared in the aftermath of his death on the cross in the heavens where he is now advocating in our defense, but he's going to come again. And when he comes again, it's not with reference to sin, it's with reference to a kingdom that he will set up and that he will establish. And therefore, because of that certain future, notice how the writer of Hebrews ends this section to those who eagerly await him. I began wrestling and began thinking, why does the writer of Hebrews end the, this section that way? What's true of those who eagerly await him? Uh, was that true of the disciples I thought about? In fact, in many ways, I thought this passage reminds me a lot of the Gospels where we get a lot of talk of Jesus' death and then quickly, in the aftermath of his death, we get a lot of talk of his appearing. In fact, I began to think about the disciples a little bit this week and I was thinking, you know, uh, at Jesus' arrest and at, at the cross, where were the disciples? Uh, they were denying Jesus. They were hiding out. They had scattered like the wind. Uh, and then something happens after his resurrection. Remember, he, he, he resurrects, he appears, he comes to them and begins to teach them. And then he departs again from them, but he reminds them, hey, I'm, I'm going to come again one day. In fact, I'll come again just the same way that you're seeing me leave. And all of a sudden, the disciples were radically new people. No longer were they hiding out with their tail between their legs, but they were all of a sudden proclaiming the death of Christ. They were all of a sudden willingly enduring arrests. They were all of a sudden willingly enduring beatings. Uh, in fact, the great majority of all the disciples and apostles were, were crucified, some upside down, because they didn't want to suffer and die in the same way that they thought Christ did. They wanted something worse. And so what happened to the disciples? <laughs> what happened? What, what completely reoriented their life and their perspective of the present and also their view of the future? Obviously, it wasn't the death of Christ, but I think it was the resurrection of Christ. And it was, therefore, their confidence that their future was secure because Christ was going to return. I want to ask you this morning, are you the kind of person that thinks about or wrestles at all with the return of Jesus Christ? Does it register on the way that you go through your day? Does it register at all with the way that you make decisions? I think there was something that happened for the disciples that for many of us at times has not yet happened. We don't get the chance to see a resurrected Jesus Christ in front of us. Like that's why John will say, uh, greater reward, greater faith for those who, who believe and yet never see Jesus the way the disciples did. 
And so what happened to them? I think it was their confidence in Jesus' return that reoriented their present and changed their perspective and their security in the future. In fact, now as they looked in the present, as we walked, watched the disciples move through their lives, they were so sure of their future, they laid the entirety of the present life down. They risked everything. In fact, I think for the disciples, it wasn't a risk at all because their future was so certain. And, and I think as we walk through this passage, in many ways, I think it takes a twist because I don't think this passage really is primarily an explanation of the death of Jesus Christ. I don't think this, this passage is primarily an explanation of the death of Jesus Christ. I think it is primarily an invitation for you and I to come and die. And I say that because really this passage kicks off on the heels of chapter 9, verse 14. And I read that to you guys as we began this morning, but I want to take you guys back there because I think it's critical to understanding what in the world the writer of Hebrews is doing here in the latter half of chapter 9. Notice what he says in chapter 9, verse 14. Let me read it again for you. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The writer of Hebrews' concern as we walk through this is not so much primarily to give them a better understanding of why their conscience has been cleansed at a point that he's been beating and laboring through all through chapters 8 and 9, but I think primarily what he's calling them to is service of a living God. What he wants them to realize is that what the death of Christ does and what it accomplishes is not just that it cleanses them from their sin, but it calls and it ushers them into service. What kind of service? What does service mean? Whatever Hebrews will say uh, that we are called to serve the living God. Paul will put it like this in Romans chapter 12 and he'll use the same exact Greek word. He says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Uh, the Greek word for service there is also the, from which we get our English word liturgy. It denotes the, uh, the ritual or the offering of sacrifice in worship to God. And I think part of what Paul and what the writer of Hebrews is talking about to you and I is that when you and I have been entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, what we've also been ushered into is service of him. And that service of worship is one in which our entire lives are laid on the altar and we're called to sacrifice and lay our lives on the altar in worship. Christ provided the ultimate penalty. He laid his entire life down so that we could enter into a relationship absolutely freely. It is not our death that gets us eternal life. It is the death of Jesus Christ, the perfect unblemished lamb that gets us eternal life. But in the getting of eternal life, what we find as we've entered into that relationship is that the most abundant life that you and I can experience in the present is one that is characterized by sacrifice and offering. It is what you and I have been called and designed to do as we worship, as we serve, as we lay our lives down to him who is maker and him who is sovereign. In fact, as you kind of walk through it, I think what's fascinating is that it is that that death, that offering is actually what provides life. And it's so contrary to our instincts, all right, that that ultimately for you and I to experience the greatest quality of life in the present requires us to lay our lives down in sacrifice and in offering. And yet our instincts, run so, our instincts run so contrary to that. I think that's why Jesus will say in Matthew 16, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16 is not an example of the gospel that gets us to eternal life, but it is an example of the call of discipleship for you and I to experience the greatest quality of life and the greatest abundance of life in the present. 
In order for us to do that, we have to negate, we have to move away from self-protection, self-promotion, and we have to move away from a pursuit of comfort. That self-protection, self-promotion, and a pursuit of comfort does not provide life, but it actually causes death, dissatisfaction, and lack of fulfillment and emptiness. Yet our entire world, our entire flesh, everything that drives every way that we think, the entirety of the world calls us in the opposite direction. And here's what life is. Pursue this. Come get this. You need this. In fact, the more and more that your life is comfortable, the more and more that you have, the more and more that you're going to find life is what the world would say. And what Christ says is he says, no, no, no. That for you to find life, even in the present, requires you to let go of all that you hold dear and to trust me with it. And to lay your life on the altar of worship to me. And when you do that, you're going to find greater life than you could ever imagine or you could ever find and pursue. Yet what's really interesting is that everything in our world, everything in our persona, everything in our flesh fights us and moves us contrary to that. I've been reading a fascinating book these last few weeks called Born to Run. Uh, In it, the writer, uh, some of you guys may have read this or run across it, but in it, the writer uh, has gotten into running. And for the last few years, he's just incredibly frustrated that in running and trying to train for marathons, he's experiencing all kinds of leg and foot injuries. And so he begins to wonder why. Running seems like a natural activity for the human body. So what is going on that is causing my body to break down time and time again? So he begins to look not just at his own life, but he begins to look, in a sense, through the history of running, looking at the rise of, and the popularity of running magazines, the rise in popularity of marathons, the rise in popularity of, of shoe companies like Nike, Adidas, New Balance. And what he begins to do is, is wonder, has the proclivity to injury in running always been the case for human nature and for human experience? Or is that something that's begun to emerge just recently? And if so, Why? And some of his findings and some of his agenda in the book are really, really fascinating. And what he'll begin to conclude and what he does is he looks at uh, a group of uh, tribesmen in the hills of Mexico called the Tarahumara, who, uh, who he gets uh, involved in uh, marathon races uh, like one called the Leadville 100. All right, It's a 100-mile marathon up and down through the mountains of Colorado, most of which people could never finish or they died in running it. All right, And these guys, the Tarahumar, run and conquer it and set world records for the 80s and the 90s. And yet what's fascinating is they only run with a thin leather strap sole with a little binding around their ankles for 100 miles, all right? While everyone else is running and they're, you know, the classic crazy new balances that are all designed for long distance running that prevent you from pronating or whatever the crazy directions are where your foot gets off track, right? Uh, And what he begins to do is he kind of walks through the book as he gets scientific studies and he begins to look at history. What he finds is that really with the rise of the popularity of running, and the rise of many shoe companies, what they began to do was design shoes that were all about providing comfort in running. And in fact, in doing that, what they began to do is change the very natural running style that you and I have as a human species, that when we have a heavy cushioned foot, we land with our heel first and not our soul. In fact, the more and more they've been designed to prevent uh, incorrect running styles, the more and more we've seen actually a rise in injuries. And what he does in looking at the Tarahumar and, and different studies throughout uh, history is that he begins to realize that much of what shoe companies are doing in the pursuit of comfort for the foot and the pursuit to protect the foot have actually made the foot more, far more in jeopardy to, and the leg to risk and to injury and to a dislike of running altogether. Right? And so what's fascinating, I think you see through the book, I think is mirrored in our spiritual lives, and that's this. So much of our pursuit of comfort and our pursuit of self-protection that seem like they're going to provide a greater abundance of life, in fact, steal life in its very nature. Now, what you and I have been called into is a service of worship that calls for the entirety of our lives. And in offering our lives, we actually find life. But in clinging and protecting our lives, we find death. 
an absence of what God has designed us to do. And so even in the book, he talks about the foot of the arch that in comfort and in shoes that have been built, the arch of the foot has been weakened so much so that it's flattened out and it can't run as it was designed to do. I think for so many of us in our pursuit of comfort at times, in our pursuit of self-protection and self-promotion, our lives have been going in the contrary direction of the way that God has designed us and what he's called us to. And what we're finding is not life, but we're finding dissatisfaction and emptiness. So what I want to do for you guys this morning as we wrap up is I want to ask you guys a question in a sense, what are you pursuing? What are the things that you're clinging on to? And as you walk with the Lord, are there areas of your life that you've built walls and that you've said to him, hey, you can come in this area of my life and be Lord. You can tinker here, but you cannot tinker here. Uh, For some of you guys, maybe that's in the area of romance and in dating. Uh, Maybe for some of you guys, it's in the area of academics and career. Things that seem for you maybe not with respect or corresponding at all or have any relevance to your faith. And you said, hey, I'll give you Sunday mornings and I'll give you maybe even a Tuesday night Bible study and I'll give you this relationship. But when it comes to a dating relationship, it comes to a career or it comes to other arenas of my life, I've built walls and I've ushered you and told you you're not welcome. And the the irony is, as we do that, what we find is not life, but we find an emptiness and a lack of fulfillment and a dissatisfaction from ultimately what God has designed and called us to. And so for some of you guys, I want to challenge you guys, even as you think about dating, as you think about marriage, that when we self-protect, we self-promote, we approach those areas of our lives with a perspective that it's all about me. And when you date, when it's all about you, the reality is when you enter into marriage, you're going to be woken up with a sober reality that when it's all about you, you're about to experience death. (laughs) Marriage, when it's all about you, is not very fun. (laughs) Sex is not all about you. And when you approach it with that kind of perspective, you find something far contrary to what God actually intended for you. For some of us, I think even when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've entered into that, we've trusted, we've heard a good news, but for many of us that have been embraced by that message, uh, for a lot of us, we've hidden it and we've buried it and we've failed to proclaim it to all those who desperately need to hear it. I want to challenge you, at least in my own life the last few weeks, as I've been looking and walking with the Lord, I, I found in me the Lord calling me and saying, hey, that when it comes to your proclamation of my gospel, when it comes to your willingness to endure the fear of rejection, the willingness to endure social awkwardness, you're pulling back. And it's time for you to trust me and, and to put those things on the altar of worship and, and to proclaim my goodness and my good news to people who desperately need to hear it. And for some of us, that may mean that you and I just have to walk across a room to a classmate, to a roommate, to a family member. For some of us, God may call you even further, not across a room, but across a continent. And for you guys, some of y'all might be approaching that fateful day of graduation. And some of y'all may not yet even realize what God may have for you. And you're wrestling with job interviews. And let me throw another one on the table and ask, might God call you across the nations and across the world to serve him for a year? Something we call stint. To take a year and go to a place of the world that you've never been, to a place of the world where people have never heard of the gospel of good news of Jesus Christ and who have no hope for eternal life. Would you go there? Or have you built a wall and you've said, I'll go here, but not there. I'll do this with my career, but not that. I'll take this amount of time and give it to you, but not that amount of time. And I think we all do that as human nature. I do that. And what I want to do this morning is call you and give you an opportunity and a moment and some time, even this morning as we wrap up for some self-examination and to come before the Lord and just ask him, hey, what do I need to hand over to you? What part of my life do I need to extend to you further? What part of my life do I need to realize that I'm not in the driver's seat? 
And as you guys have time here, Jamie leads us in worship. I want you guys just to be able to come before the Lord and ask the Lord to examine your own heart and to call you uh, to areas even of a discomfort and to call you to areas even of sacrifice and of offering. And as we do that, a couple of people are going to come forward. If you just want to pray with someone, if you want to talk to someone, we're going to have someone up here to do that with you. And we welcome a chance just to interact. And then I'll come up and close us in prayer. With everything, God, we will shout for Father God, we give you great thanks. You are our sovereign king. You are the provider and protector of all that we hold dear. Father, I pray that as you move in our lives in the areas that you revealed to us even this morning and that you may continue this afternoon, Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to let go, courage to put things on the altar of sacrifice, and that even if you consume them and you burn them up, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that there's greater life found in where you'll lead us and what you'll take us to. Father, I pray that you give us faith to trust you, courage to pursue you, confidence that even in all that we would risk in the present, it is nothing compared to the certainty of the future that's coming. And when you return and you will establish a kingdom of priests from men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. Father, I thank you that you are on the move, Lord. And I pray that you would give us a willingness to join you where you're moving and where you're calling us to. And you'd give us perspective to see that your agenda is so much greater than our own at times. And Father, I pray that you would call us, that you would draw us near. And you would give us a joy and an overwhelming passion for your glory and for your name above all else, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thank you guys for being here this morning. And we'll see some of you guys at CC's.